we get those things today. Just like Bob. They're hitting. They're hitting. Okay. All righty. All right. We are going to go ahead and get started this morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome to. Uh, we changed our class name. Welcome to Death and Resurrection of the Messiah. We are switching to a new video series today. Um, and this, this series has uh, 10 videos in it, although during this last week I cut the videos and edited them together. <laughs> and I may or may not have cut four or five minutes of just camera pans and music going through Jerusalem. Thank so you. If, you notice, <laughs> if you notice some... Uh, some cinematography missing, it's because of that, but it did save us uh, six or seven minutes. So uh, I'm going to read the announcements and say a prayer and we will get started. Uh, Wednesday nights, we're, everyone is meeting in the gym at 7 p.m. Uh, for the Intergenerational Study of Patriarchs, Kings, and Prophets. Uh, nursery is available for ages zero to two for those who register beforehand. Um, the family, uh, family prayer concerns, we've got Bob Brannon, who is readmitted re to the hospital for pneumonia. Catherine, Catherine Broadway, diagnosed with aggressive uh, adenocarcinoma. Is that right, Bets? Okay. Adenocarcinoma, adenocarcinoma can cancer. Um, Liam Dean, nephew of Susan Knox, had skull surgery in Birmingham on July 18th. And Paul Schoon, uh, experiencing kidney problems. Currently, he's on dialysis and in need of transportation to treatment. Um, and you can visit the website uh, Otter Happenings if you can help out with that and you can sign up. Um, yeah, if you would, bow with me and we'll, we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come together with this congregation and with others around the world who are here to worship your name and to study and to, to hear your word and hear the gospel and, and to fall in love with it and to share it with others uh, during the week. God, thank you for, for your son and his his sacrifice that he made and the the guidance that he has given us and left us with and his spirit and uh, and thank you so much for that and it's in his name we pray amen let's see uh do this part so here's part of our scripture to start today off with peace i leave with you my peace i give you i do not give to you as the world gives do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. That's John 14 through 27. So I'm going to, for this video, I am going to uh, flip over to a, this thing real quick. I couldn't get this video this week on <coughs> this one. Here we go. Get started. The ancient land of Israel is a testimony and evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. The people who live here 
have left behind a record, an indelible record, if you will, of their lives. An important part of that record is the cities where they live, ancient piles of debris that contain their culture, architecture, art, their diet, the weapons they used, and even on occasion, their writings. These piles of ancient cities, often built one on top of the other, are called tells. People in ancient times tended to build and live in the same places, maybe because there were occupations there, or a main road went nearby, or maybe most likely of all, a source of fresh water. As archaeologists began to peel away the layers of this ancient civilization, the culture and even the people of the Bible come to life. I'd like to ask you to join us on this adventure. We're going to try and understand the people, the context of the Bible. It'll mean some extra hiking, some climbing, some travel to out-of-the-way places. But the end result, I think, will be well worth the effort as we discover again that God's word, God's message, is as relevant for us as it was for them. It doesn't take long in the Middle East, in this part of the world, to discover how important water is. Almost every major Bible event happens somewhere near a water source. So it's appropriate then that the ministry of Jesus, particularly his teaching ministry, is set by the largest body of fresh water in the country, the Sea of Galilee. A sea, however, was not a calm pastoral idea to the people of Israel. Rather, it represented something quite different to them. to the Sea of Galilee. We're a beautiful morning. Sun coming up over here in the east. Just a glorious morning. The more we learn about this beautiful country where God did so much that's so important to all of us, the more we recognize how important water was in their everyday lives. We've seen cisterns and water tunnels and hiked through Hezekiah's tunnel. We've noticed how often stories revolved around discussions and disputes about water. We've even discovered at En Gedi that in a sense, Jesus himself is like water, and we are to become living water to others. So it's appropriate when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus that we come to a place where there's water. This morning we sail out on the Sea of Galilee, right at sunrise, as he often did, and we think about the life and ministry of Jesus here around this lake. It's the largest body of fresh water in Israel, it's about 12 and a half miles long, about seven and a half miles wide. It's over 600 feet below sea level, actually, so the climate tends to be fairly tropical here. We can say that a great percentage of the ministry of Jesus that he did in the New Testament took place right here around this lake. On the west side, we have the mountains here on which is the modern city of Tiberias. Jesus avoided that area. To the northern end here, we have the area where Jesus actually lived and ministered, with Chorazin up the hill a ways, 
Pernahum down at the water level and over a little bit further to the east, Bethsaida. The Bible says that in that triangle of cities, most of Jesus' miracles were performed. I thought it would be appropriate this morning just to share a little bit of a few of the stories that happened here on the lake. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now lo and behold, as they bring the fish up to shore, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. One of the things that intrigues me about that story is the fact that 153 became a number in their minds representing all the nations. I, I love that use of the number 153 because the implication, of course, is that that has to extend now to all the world. And in a sense, Jesus is already teaching the disciples that God's kingdom is bigger than Jewish, it's bigger than Protestant, it's big enough to include all of God's people in God's world. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, large bodies of water often were synonymous with death and with chaos, sometimes called the abyss. So even though this fresh water was a wonderful thing and that fishing was so important, there was a sense in which this lake too represented negative connotations. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went into the hills to pray. And so Jesus says to the disciples, why don't you row across the end of the lake to the east? Probably would have rowed fairly close to shore. Meanwhile, he went up into those hills to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now, that struck me as I read that because it says, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So when it got dark, the boat was out in the middle or out into the waterways. He waited till the fourth watch of the night, which means those disciples were rowing there for maybe as much as six hours, maybe eight hours. Why would Jesus sit up in those hills? watching those obviously tired disciples after several hours of rowing against the wind and just let them row. Maybe the teaching of that as we're out on this lake is to think about the fact that we struggle in our lives, we can count on the help of God. But often I think our struggle is one that God allows us to have for a while. And then this very fascinating little phrase, it says, he was about to pass them by walking on the lake. Amazing. I mean, he sat there and watched them rowing. He could see their struggle. He could see the wind against them. He waits six or eight hours. Then he walks out to them. And he's about to walk by. I mean, that's incredible. Imagine you're in this boat and you're rowing and rowing and your arms ache and your 
back aches. And then here he comes walking on the water towards you. You see him coming. You're not sure. Maybe it's a ghost. He comes walking out here. He goes right on by. But then they were terrified because of him and because of what was happening. And they cried out. And then it says, immediately he stopped and spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. For they had not understood, their hearts were hardened. Just an encouragement again out here on the lake. I don't think it's a profound theological concept, but simply the idea that sometimes when God lets us struggle, when the moment finally comes, when the struggle is to the point where he's willing to step in, it still takes that step on our part to reach out and to call for him. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Now that is over there. It suggests to me that in our struggles in life, we need to row in the direction we think God wants us to go. But there will be times we will end up in different places than we expected him to take us. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When the evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, let me come to you on the water. Come, he said. Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I think about that, there are two things I would hold before you from Peter. One is he had the courage to try it. And it strikes me that Peter hadn't had a lot of practice walking on water. Probably never did it before. And yet when the time came and it seemed to be that was what God wanted of him, Peter gave it a shot. And maybe sometimes we hurt ourselves in our attempt to impact people around us by being hesitant to try what at the moment seems to be what God wants. So let's tie together and summarize the faith lesson this morning. I think the first thing that strikes me is that God has power over evil. Even a lake like this with storms that represent, to them at least, some of the worst that life could throw at us, Jesus Christ is bigger than that. And whatever it is we face, personally, in our communities, in our families, in our culture, Jesus Christ's power is greater. And that I want to take home with me. The second thing I think that strikes me is simply Peter's courage and his willingness to say, God, there's a kingdom. I want to be like you, and I want to bring that kingdom. That's right. The third thing has to do with the fishing. Nesher here is going to uh, demonstrate for us uh, a method of net casting for fish. 
Now, as you watch that, that's a 2,000-year-old craft. And just two thoughts came to my mind as I thought about Peter being a fisherman like Nesher. One was, I couldn't do that. That took a lot of practice to get that net right and throw that net so it landed out there. If we're going to be followers of our Jesus, it's going to take some practice to be able to bring the gift of his way, his love, to the people he would bring into his kingdom. And I intend to practice that more than I have. The other thing is he didn't catch anything. Obviously, a fisherman doesn't catch something every time he throws his hook, every time he casts a net. And so when you go back and you bring what God has impacted you with from this land and these hills and these tells, you won't catch something either every time. But keep casting. The lake you're going back to, God's prepared already. And there are people there who are going to need just exactly what you've been given. land of Israel is a testimony, an evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country, a testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. Jesus interacted with many different kinds of people in his ministry. He interacted with those who were satisfied with the Romans, those who resisted the Romans like the Zealots. To the east of the Sea of Galilee were the pagans. Those people who had really never been a part of the ministry of God or of God's word. Jesus also went there to confront, as it were, the very power of evil that existed in his world. In fact, this is the northern edge of the Decapolis. Decapolis meaning the ten cities. There were ten cities making up a district of this country that had originally been founded by the Greeks. There's nine of them on this side of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, and one to the south on the west side of the Jordan River called Beit Shan. They were very sophisticated cities. To the Jewish mind, they were pagan cities were cities that had been founded by the pagan Greeks. They practiced the fertility cult. They uh, considered the pig a sacred animal, which is kind of significant given what the Jewish folks thought about pigs and pork. That was unclean and kosher, of course. And so this part of the sea was basically considered to be pagan country. The first thing I'd like to just uh, deal with a bit here is why was this considered to be pagan territory? You know, if this was given to the Israelite tribes when they came into the land, how did it end up being pagan territory? To the rabbinic tradition, the Decapolis, this area, was the place to which Joshua had driven out the seven nations of the Canaanites. 
They believed those seven pagan Canaanite nations had been driven across the river and had ended up living here. And if you look in the book of Joshua, uh, I'm reading in chapter 3, reads like this. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Seven pagan nations that are going to be driven out. You'll notice in Acts chapter 13, it says, He overthrew, God that is, He overthrew the seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to His people as their inheritance. Now, I think that there's something in Jesus' ministry which indicates that He very clearly ministered both to the believing Jewish community on that side of the sea, as well as to these seven pagan nations. And I'd like to suggest that his miracle of the feeding, first of the 5,000, second of the 4,000, was a way, in a very Jewish way, of communicating that he was the bread of life, or he was the life giver, or the second Moses, who brought manna from heaven, to both Jew, living over on the northwest side, and to Gentile pagan, living over here on the northeast side. Mark says Jesus directed them to have the people sit down. This is in the area of Capernaum. And he says, have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. Now, I would suggest to a Hebrew mind in that culture, 12 always represented the tribes of Israel. And by Jesus picking up 12 baskets, it seems to me that the implication is that he was the bread of life in abundance to the 12. Now, if we look at Mark chapter 7, you have the feeding of the 4,000. And here he goes across the sea. It says he went through Sidon down to Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Same way. They ate and so on. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets of broken pieces that were left over. And I'd like to suggest that that's Jesus' way of communicating that he is the bread of life to the seven nations. So, let's set the stage again. We're sitting here at the edge of the Decapolis. The cities are to the south of us. Jesus ministered over there, across the sea, on the northwest corner, among mainly believing in God, the Jewish people. But he came across here on a couple of occasions to perform his work. And I think he was saying, I am the God who feeds the twelve, and I am the God who feeds the seven. And the seven men would fit very well here because this is where the seven nations were. Now let's set one more thing. To the Jewish mind, the rabbinic mind of the New Testament, or the Pharisee mind of the New Testament, this was an unclean area. They considered it the place of the devil. Beelzebub lived here because of the pagan religions that they connected with the old Baal worship of those Canaanites. So they referred to it as across the sea, or the Decapolis. When evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And I think that not only means let's cross, I think it also means let's go to this bad place. So you can imagine the disciples had thoughts crossing their mind. Why would he want to go there? 
Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Now remember, to the Jewish mind, the lake was also often seen to be the abyss, the power of evil. So these disciples are thinking, we're going across to the territory where the devil lives, and on the way, a furious storm came up, and waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I would suspect at that moment that they're also thinking, that's what you get when you confront the power of the devil. You go to Beelzebub country, and he's going to get us. And what is his power? The storm, thunder, lightning, and the lake is going to swamp us, and we're going to drown in the depths of the sea. And they're scared. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Just like that. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now my suggestion to you is that there's something more to that than just Jesus could control the power of creation. I'd like to suggest that at that moment, the wind and the waves represented as well the power of evil. And so I think it's safe to say that they were also thinking even the demons do what he says. Even the evil power does what he says. When he got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. The man lived in tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So here comes Jesus. The disciples are thinking, Jesus, we don't want to go to this place. This is an evil place. He says, let's go. So they go. What happens? A storm. Told you. Shouldn't be here. Jesus says, now wait a minute, where's your faith? Quiet. And they're amazed, this guy is even bigger than the storm. Even the power of evil can't touch him. So they land, and what happens? Here's this fearsome person that nobody can control, that runs around dangerous to the society. They can't even chain him because he breaks the chains, and the disciples have to be thinking. Out of the frying pan into the fire. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of Most High God? Swear to God you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied. For we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Why pigs? The pigs at that point represent the sacred animal of the fertility cult. So here are the very symbols. The lamb to the Jew is the pig to the fertility person. 
The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. It's appropriate. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And Luke calls it into the abyss. So the lake takes on the symbolism and just like Elijah takes the Baal prophets and kills them at the Kishon River, the symbol of Baal, the pigs are drowned in the abyss, the lake, the symbol of the abyss. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came out to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then this verse, Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their area. I'd like to have you notice, first of all, that Jesus deliberately, consciously, in a very planned way, goes right to where he finds the evil and confronts it. <clears throat> I think that's part of what we're called to do as Christians. I don't think we wait for evil to come to us. He didn't wait for the demon-possessed man to row across. He didn't wait for the storm to die down to go out there. He went and found it. And as we think about our world-changing call from God, where we're supposed to impact culture, I would like to suggest that as Jesus did, we need to find where the power of evil is in whatever aspect of life we're involved in and confront it. I don't think we can wait for it to come to us. The second thing is, when you come and live out your faith, you can expect people to resist and resent and not to want to have anything to do with you. And so the people pleaded with Jesus to leave because there just is no way that those two things can live together. But then let's go on, because the best is coming yet. As Jesus was getting back into the boat, he's finished. That's all he did, came over here to heal one man. Jesus was getting back into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Please, take me with you. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm different now. I've been changed. Jesus did not let him in the boat. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Now you talk about a tough mission field. Here's a guy that 15 minutes ago had been possessed by a demon. Now all of a sudden, he's the only missionary in the area that, to them at least, represented the most pagan place you could possibly be. That's a pretty incredible calling. But what I like about it is that Jesus says your message is simple. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to have a seminary degree. Just tell them what happened. That, I think, people, is the key to the confrontation with evil, is to be able to simply tell what God has done in your life and mine. Let me just pick up with one verse that comes after this demon-possessed man. I should make clear, he's in the Decapolis. 
Matthew chapter 15. Jesus left there, went up into the hills and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the dumb, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And the people were amazed when they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Apparently that man had been a pretty good missionary. Because when Jesus came back here, there's a whole crowd of people that are coming to find out who this Jesus was. I find that pretty incredible that all these people apparently listened to this one man and his story by the power of God that made a difference in their lives. And I think that's the good part about this faith lesson. God calls us to be his people in a culture that doesn't hold his values. This area of the Decapolis became the strongest part of the early Christian community in this part of the world. In fact, at all the major church councils where decisions were made that established our creeds, Decisions were made even that put our Bible together. Decisions were made that helped to develop our theology at its earliest point. In every one, there's a bishop mentioned who comes from Kursi to those councils. And it's really fascinating to me how through the ministry of one person, this area became a central focus of the mission, the work, the life of Jesus Christ. Questions? Observations? I think when I look in our world today, the people who make the greatest impact for Christ are those that are most, the most impassioned about it and not necessarily the most knowledgeable. And I think that's something that we can all carry back to. We may have the knowledge and have grown up in it and have you know, a lot of answers to give people, but unless we communicate that with a passion and the way that he's working in our own life, we're not really going to make the kind of impact that we make. And God says, your call is to bring my values, to confront the evil values, the bad values, the negative values of the culture you live in. What you need to do is just go and show people what's happened to you. So very much interested in uh, your guys' reaction to that one. While you're gathering your thoughts, I'll say, so I think when we put together the content for this class, uh, we thought that the video series lined right up with each other. So when we ended our last video series, it was sort of uh, the night Jesus was arrested, and now we're kind of going backwards a little bit. So, uh, But we had a look at this, like, well, that's really good stuff. There was, like, actually... I was kind of surprised at some of the very practical elements from the, the first bit on the boat. Uh, so I hope you'll forgive us. We're just going to stick to this plan. Sounds good. So, uh, Okay. With that in mind, um, I, so all these are our prompts to help you start thinking. We don't necessarily have to stick exactly to those, but interested in your thoughts from uh, what we all just watched together.
Yeah. With respect to the first question, uh, I think uh, it was to show God's glory that much more, to magnify it, that they're powerless without God. Yeah. When I think about how furiously they must have been rowing and kind of in vain because they weren't stronger than the threatening waves. And then I think about Jesus almost walking past them. It reminds me of all of the times I'm struggling myself. And if I were to just look up, the help would be right there. Yeah, I, I know that in my, my personal life, whenever there's been struggles, that's when I've grown the most. And, you know, at the time I'm having the struggles, I don't thank God, thank you for this awful time. But when I look back on it, I'm always able to say, wow, you know, I was here, now I'm here, and I couldn't have gotten here without struggling. And that part about Jesus walking past them reminds me of so many of the times in, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus encountered someone who was blind or, or they, they couldn't walk, you, I don't think there's a time when he healed without first being asked. And that's, that's always a hard reminder to me is I, I, I want to fix people, but I need to wait for people to ask me, will you help instead of me giving help because that's not a good system. Mm -hmm. If I just give without being asked. Yeah, I think there's something. There, I get my thinking of what happened in the video and just the way that was described is that there's this real value to that moment when they struggled. Um. And it's a valuable lesson like to us to think if I cry out to God and I don't get a response immediately, well, what there's, this shows me I shouldn't really expect that, right? Um, there's a response, and he's watching, and he's there, and he's got a plan. I, I, don't, I don't perceive from this that Jesus was sitting on the hill watching and thought, ooh, they're about to go in. I better get out there, right? Like he knew what was going on, <laughs> right? Uh, he had he had a plan. It just maybe wasn't on the timeline that made sense to the guys while they're rolling away. Right? You know. Other thoughts. I just want to relate to being a parent, is um, you know you see your kids struggling and going through a hard time, and maybe you want to jump in and try to solve it for them. But you know the best thing for them is to go through that struggle and mm -hmm. work through choices on their own. Well, that's great. Uh, it's hard to watch your kids struggle. I, I can't, I can't say that since ours, ours are very small. I don't know that we've watched maybe as, as many struggles as, as they get bigger. But 
Oh, okay, well. Do you mean like a, like a mission that we have, an activity that we're going to do? Yeah, and there's, um, there's that idea of being invited into what God is doing in the universe, mm -hmm. what God is doing in this world. Um, but I think it's quite exciting, and it's an amazing story that, that we don't even know what it's going to look like. But that all suffering, all struggle, has a purpose, even though we cannot see that. I think you might just blow my mind. And there's like a there's like a Far Side cartoon where there's like an angel and he's sitting on a on a cloud, and he's like, and the caption is, "Wish I brought a magazine." You know, like I, that blows my mind to think that there is a purposeful something to you know, the afterlife has a a thing to do. Other than sing praises all day, you know, does that make sense? Is that am I interpreting what you're saying correctly? Yeah, I, I, for me, it's really fascinating to think about the fact that you know, on the sixth day, seventh day, God rests, but creation and creativity is still going on, but it's within the humanity that He has created and ultimately is realizing Jesus Christ. So there is this part in which we play something that is incredibly significant in creation itself. But it's it's really the struggles that we have to face and go through and things that create maybe something beyond even what we can see. Wow. And Paul says, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be great. <laughs> All right, so anyone want to top that? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Um, you guys are awesome. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. We'll have our, our next one. I don't know if this will even work now. Um, yeah. Our next one next week is session three. It's, uh, it's called The Gates of Hades. So some interesting content we'll have for you next week. Have a have a great rest of your Sunday.